Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. God, you are worthy of our praise. Lord, you are mighty in all of your ways. Lord, you are mighty to save. And you are wonderful, Lord, and you are beautiful. And we even see Peter called precious, Lord, this faith that we have, Father. So I would pray, Lord, that you would speak your word through me now, God. Would you fill me with your spirit, Lord, and remove me from the situation, Lord, and allow me to teach your word as it would be taught. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me find my spot here. So I'm going to read. Uh, so we see Jude. Jude. There's two different Jews that this could be, and there's none of them are really concrete. But my personal study, I come to find that this is Jude, Jesus's youngest brother. Uh, we see that in Matthew in a couple places where it says, uh, you know, when they came to look for Jesus, they had James. I, I don't want to paraphrase it, but they had Jude with them. And Judah, his real name is Judas, and the English translators left it at Jude to not have this book to be mixed up with Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed Jesus. So, um, you know, we talked about last week how Jude claims he was a bond servant instead of the brother of Jesus. I was thinking, I know if I grew up in a household with Jesus, my first introductory would be, hey, my name is Aaron, and I'm a brother of Jesus Christ. Family, blood brother. But it shows his humility and how much the blood of Jesus as his Savior meant more than being the blood of his family. Um, he calls this letter out to us. This is epistle to the church. It says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And he continues to ask us to contend for the faith, which means there's a true gospel and it's in his word. And for us to be gathering under the fellowship of the apostles' doctrine, which is the written word of God. The basis of our gathering is the word of God. And he says to contend for that earnestly, to fight for it with everything you have, to exhaust all resources. That in the last days this was going to come. He said it was a handful back in the early church. This was a handful. But now it's a hurricane that's blowing through the church in the day and age that we live. So he, he, he asks us to contend for it. He uh, actually exhorts us earnestly con to contend. So he says, guys will come along and in their lewdness they will deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then starting in verse 5, I'll read down through uh, 11. But I want to remind you. Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know, like naturally, whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So starting back in verse 5, when he says, I want to remind you of these things, Jude is a constant reminder. There's several times in here he says he wants to remind us. And as Christians in this walk of faith, it's so good for us to be reminded. Um, constantly we get out in the world and start going and things happen. And Lord, just remind me who I am in you again. Remind me that the world is not my home. Remind me I have an eternal destiny with you, Lord, that this is not it. 
But he's speaking specifically about the ones he saved out of the land of Egypt that didn't really go into the promised land. Now, these became ungrateful. They wanted to go back to slavery because of the, the onions and the good food that they had and the constant, but they forgot about the slavery and the bondage that they were in. The Lord saved them out of that, and they forgot. So in relating to these false teachers that come, they will try to lead you astray from the gratitude of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, that we have found through the salvation of the cross. They will try to give you some other way. Verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Speaking of these angels and their proper domain, I just wanted to read to you guys real quick. You don't have to go there. It's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It just speaks of what happened when these angels came down into earth back in Genesis. It says, Now it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, these angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not, shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth, and in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now you think about these angels who were in their proper dwelling place with the Lord. They were in the presence of God in the heavenlies, in the spiritual. And out of their ungratefulness, they came down into earth to experience other earthly fleshly desires. So when you're speaking to these false teachers that will come, they will try to lead us astray again of the grace that we have. And, he, and it co coincides right into um, verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah... And the cities around them in a similar manner, these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after straight and strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. If you can recall Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and the homosexuality that ran rapid in Sodom and Gomorrah and how that's trying to creep into the church and how the church is giving over to these things these days. Personally, I have a small testimony of a pastor who married me and my wife who has now gone that way, and we pray for him, and we pray for the church that we came up in. But we see these ways of thinking as they, we leave the unnatural, we leave the natural thing that God has called us for to the unnatural, and then it tries to creep into the church to defile the church and to remove the church from the grace and the pureness and holiness of what Jesus done on the cross for us. In verse 8, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. When Jude's writing about these dreamers, he's speaking of the apostates who may live in a false state of reality. Some of them possibly had drug-induced dreams that would claim it was from the Lord and try to bring that into the church. They also defile the flesh, which means to pollute, contaminate the flesh. In one sense, it could say that it meant to stain or dye another color. And they reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. As we've seen in the beginning, he said these guys crept in. These false teachers would creep into the church. They wouldn't come to the pastors or the leaders or the, the deacons or anybody that's in leadership. They would come in slowly. They would join a prayer group, and they would try to lead people astray with some kind of false doctrine or theology that they have. And try to lead them away by rejecting authority. So these men will not submit to authority, leadership, the pastors, and ultimately they will not submit to the word of God. 
as this is the truth. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and active. Cuts down to the soul and spirit and the bone and the marrow. They would try to remove you from that and have you follow them to whatever they are called for. And as we continue on, you'll see what they are called for as it speaks of it. Yet Michael, verse number nine, yet Michael, the archangel, and contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael is the archangel. He is the, the one on with the Lord. He is the, how was I putting this, the host of hosts. He's not the Lord of hosts, but he is the main angel that fights for the Lord. And we see here the idea of fighting Satan in the church is not for us to stand up and battle and brawl, but let the Lord fight our battles. As we see with Michael, the archangel says, he did not bring a reviling accusation. We see the evil in the world. Will we revilely accuse everybody of their sin? Where are we looking at with us? Where are our hearts in the matter? He says, the Lord rebuke you. Let the Lord fight that battle. Sometimes we struggle in life, I believe, and I know I've had these thoughts that there was this constant battle of the Lord fighting with Satan every day. God and Satan in this battle. But this truth right here shows us that Satan is a created being and he is under the control of God and his sovereignty, sometimes to allow people to suffer so they can come to the Lord. But we see that Michael the archangel is the one that is fighting for us here in the scripture. Jesus has won the victory. There's no more fighting. We fight from the victory of what Christ did on the cross. In the spiritual realm, Michael the archangel is the one that fights for us with Satan, and he doesn't even bring a reviling accusation. He says, the Lord rebuke you. How awesome is that? Verse number 10 says, but these false teachers, they speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. The context of verse 10, I just see really animalistic men who are running after the natural carnal desires of their flesh. We can, we can list a whole list of things, of addictions and monies and greeds and all types of things, but we see these men, they follow after their instincts, and they speak evil of whatever they do not know. Verse number 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and run greedily in the area of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now the way of Cain, if we remember back in Genesis, Cain offered a sacrifice of grain unto the Lord without faith. Abel, he brought the sacrifice of a lamb with faith unto God and God accepted his, his sacrifice. We've seen that Cain got angry and about that he went out and murdered. So we could say that the Cain version, if they go in the way of Cain, they would bring things in that were not of a faith offering to God to say that we can make it to God. You guys have probably heard it before. There's many roads that lead to God. There are, there, there are many ways of salvation to get to heaven. No, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, and he either is or he isn't, and for us, we believe in that. We believe in the... In, in, in the substitutionary atonement. And out of that, the Cain and Abel come down every form of religion we see. We see the workspace religion, the show up, check the box, and do your thing, or do we believe that God has provided that sacrifice? And we stand here in faith and believe that today. The heir of Balaam for profit. 
is another way that they speak. It says it's in the book of Numbers 16. Balaam is responsible for beating the talking donkey. So let's say if you see these false teachers beating animals, we know who they are. All right, that joke didn't go too well, but I'm just saying. Anyway, <laughs> so we see that Balaam, he also gave counsel to the king Balak back in number 16, who promised great riches to Balaam's for his advice. And by the advice that the Lord continued to tell Balaam to not go, he still went out of the gain for riches. He wound up leading Israel into idolatry and fornication, and he led 24,000 into destruction. So these false apostate teachers will compromise the truth of God's word for profit. Get a big crowd together and try and guilt them into an offering. I've been to them before. I know somebody here is going to give $1,000. Grandma who can't pay their rent, but she wants the Lord's blessing so bad, deceived into doing that. I think that breaks the Lord's heart. Kind of growing up in, in Christianity and, and trying to find my walk and where I belong and where the Lord's calling me to, I got caught up in a lot of things too. Healings and things that I wanted to see and be a part of, but the Lord kept, continued to say he's the one that would do that. It's not about me. One of the biggest things I see today is the music and the worship industry. This packaged worship that is kind of devised by critics that pay to invest in and, and get it in and then the worship drags you in and we're so good and this worship is great and then you get down to the teaching and it is nothing about what the worship is talking about we sing about the cross and who he is and how great our salvation is in him because he has done it he has made a way and i've really been learning that lately that sometimes the music and the worship and the worship can get me in to try and see who is the teacher of that and it would lead me astray when he talks about in the way of Korah, as I taught a couple weeks ago on Psalm 46, the sons of Korah did not go in the rebellion of their father Korah, but Korah rose up in pride in Numbers 19 or 16, and he led a prideful rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korah also led up in his pride to try and lead what was going on, and he took 250 people with him. And Moses said, Korah, if, the God, if God does a new thing and opens up the earth and swallows you whole, then we will know who God is for. And that's what happened to Korah. He took 250 men and all of his belongings with him. They had no use for him in the pit. These false teachers will try to do the same as well, to rise up in pride against who God has called for teaching or for worship or for any ministry. These things will rise up against you. Verse 12 says, these are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees with fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. When he speaks of these spots in your love feast, he's speaking of a nautical term, which means as you're cruising on the ocean, there would be a rock or a ledge in the path. These would be somebody who damages others by their immoral conduct to wreck a person. They will feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. As a shepherd or as a, as a leader in the church, we are called to feed the flock the word of God, to allow the Lord to be the counselor. These false teachers will come to feed themselves. It will be all about them, and they are... Um, they are clouds without water. 
Have you ever looked up and just seen a cloud just floating by? It looks nice, it's high, it's puffy, it's, it's all a front. They are puffed up with pride and possibly knowledge, but have not the love and the wisdom to apply the word. They look like they are filled with the word, but they block the sun, and they produce no watering of the word that bears fruit. Also, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I don't know too much about farming or gardening, but I know if fruit does not bear by late autumn, then it's not probably going to bear fruit for the rest of the year. He says they are twice dead and they are pulled up by the roots. Twice dead seems like overkill to me, and pulled up by the roots seems like there's never nothing going to happen from these false teachers. Matthew 7.20 says, therefore you will know them. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. They will, you will know if they are my disciples. Verse 13 says, They are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The raging waves of the sea, foaming up their, their own shame. These are openly unashamed false teachers. They are busy and there is a lot going on, but the only thing that is produces is a bunch of dirt and mud in the driftwood that lays up on the beach. Have you ever seen the raging waves? They're kind of fierce, intimidating. They kind of ride high, they crash into each other. They bring up all the mud and stir. I've seen pictures of the, you know, the, the polluted oceans and the waves just push all these things in and there's nothing, there's no fruit that comes. It's just a raging, raging sea and it foams up in their own shame. It also says they are wandering stars. Speaks of those who wander with no destination. Have you guys ever seen a shooting star? I remember seeing them a lot when I was a kid, and it was like this amazing, wow, I seen a shooting star. That was amazing. And in my heart, I'm like, man, maybe that means something. Maybe that's God showing me a sign. And these are who these false teachers will be. They will come. They will explode with great light, and it will be a great thing. But then it will be back to the dead blackness. Really quick outbursts of, of whatever they do. For them, there is blackness and darkness forever. Verse 14 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now Enoch was a tough subject when I was going into studying. They say there's a book of Enoch that he's written a book, but it's not in the scripture. So I just kind of left that to that. But to see his name was Genesis 5, 23 to 24. says, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. And he says, Enoch prophesied about these men that would come, and behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. This speaks of Jesus' second coming. As Christians, we're supposed to wait on the Lord to look expectantly for him to come. 15 says, To execute judgment on all, this is the Lord coming with 10,000 of his saints, to convict all who are ungodly. Among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are ungodly. They have no reverence for God and who he is. To live in the fear of the Lord. I really couldn't imagine getting up here trying to tell you guys anything other than the book that's in front of me. As you can see, it's hard to get through some of it sometimes, you know, but even to get up here to try and teach anything without this. And I see these, these guys that are, they run around, they might have it set up, but there's no scripture teaching. 
And you get excited about that, and it kind of leads some people astray. Verse 16 says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. These grumblers, they mutter complaints behind others' backs, kind of under the breath or to another person. Complainers are those who are not content with their lot. They tend to blame others for their position. They walk according to their own lust. Their motive is to not please God, but to follow the cravings and to satisfy their flesh. And they will mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. These false teachers will speak extravagantly and, and, and work a crowd of people to get an offering. Jude has laid out many characteristics of these false teachers. Probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to come along and agree with and, and lay out. Um, he starts to turn the page here in verse 17. But he says, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These mockers, they will mock the word of God because the love they have for their sin is more than the love that they have for God. As I was reading through some other epistles, uh, 2 Peter 2 almost sounds word for word as Jude does. And it's just amazing to see how the Holy Spirit gives us this warning of these teachers that will come. And it's almost the same warning through each teacher. But one that kind of stuck out to me was 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. And he says, but know this, that in these last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They will be boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then Timothy goes on to say, and from such people turn away. Verse 19 says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Sensual persons means carnal men and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Everything is based off of their feelings. I wanted to go into the pastor of Maine's rant where he talks about the feeling. One of the big words around the church is, I feel the Lord, brother. The Lord's talking to me. I can hear him speaking to me. Is your Bible open? All right, I don't really trust it. You know, They divide themselves as some kind of Christian Pharisees without coming under leadership or seeking permissions from the elders or pastors of the church, ultimately causing a division. These guys do not have the spirit. Verse 20. But you, beloved, this is to us, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. How do we build ourselves up in the most holy faith? To study the word of God. I found that I stopped, got, stopped getting carried away when I started reading the word and allowing it to be taught verse by verse and showing me who God really is. Early in my Christian walk, I would follow men that were excited and they were creating revivals and these big things were going on and as soon as it was over it was back to where am I at 
You know, until I started studying the word, was I able to really discern who was telling me the truth. And as humans, we have that tendency. And Jeremiah, it says, our heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? If it's not the word of God and it's not solid, I don't want it. So to avoid being led astray by these false teachers, build yourself up on the foundation that was once laid, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and his word. Make the word of God the main influence in your life. Not any man or men or denomination. I would submit yourselves to a pastor. Allow him to teach you the scriptures. But don't allow that pastor to become the man that you're following. I've seen it many times. We stay grounded in the word. And Jude gives us this warning and this exhortation to stay in the word. He also says to pray in the Holy Spirit. I wanted to go on about that, but sometimes speaking about Holy Spirit and things kind of leads me to a place where I might not get something across. So I wanted to go to Romans 8, 26 through 27, who kind of gives us, Paul gives us a picture of what it is to pray in the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8, 26 through 27 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes we don't have the words. Sometimes our prayers are more about the things that we need or the ones that we have for family members or other, other things. Paul here is making mention that sometimes the groaning of the Spirit, the Spirit that the Father has put in us crying, Abba, intercedes for us and He knows our needs. If we trust and place our faith in that and what the Lord has done for us. Verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Constantly staying in the word and praying and abiding in the word of Jesus Christ. I have another verse that kind of goes along with, along with that that I couldn't really explain it out well. So John 15, 4 through 8. I can read it to you or you can go there. I have you guys doing a lot of flipping this evening and I apologize. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And we continue to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And he's given us this before to, to look upon and wait for the Lord to come, be expectant of his coming. If we live in that manner of knowing the Lord could come at any second in a twinkling of an eye, we would keep our hearts right and pure in front of him. When he comes, I don't want to be led astray by a false teacher or caught up in some sin. I want to be ready when he comes. Every morning his mercies are new and he's faithful. 
verses 22 and 23, Jude kind of tells us if we see a brother or a sister caught up in false doctrine or a false teaching, kind of how to approach the situation. He has warned us of the character of these false teachers. He has given us a lot of warning in depth. If he was here to teach that, he'd probably done a great job, but his word's going to stand alone, and it means what it's going to mean. So in verse 22, he tells us, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. On some of the people we see, Jude says, Use discernment and wisdom in approaching a brother to bring him back to the faith that Jude had asked us earlier to contend for. Come at him with compassion, lowly of heart. Make a distinction between if you need to be strong and sturdy or if you come at him graciously and lead him back to the faith that we have been given. 23 says, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This speaks of a more stronger approach and that the fire they may be in is dangerous. But one thing we have to do is never to approach a brother and bring him back in a prideful manner. Save them with fear, the fear of the Lord and the reverence of who he is. He is mighty, he is strong to save. He's conquered the grave. Get them back to the truth. So he sends us out here in verse 24, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is able to keep us from stumbling. This speaks that we are not able to keep ourselves from stumbling. We need the Lord to keep us. Back in the beginning of Jude, he says we are preserved in Jesus Christ. And he says we will never be plucked out of his hand. If we stay abiding in his word, studying his word, praying in the spirit, fellowshipping with believers of like mind, he will present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy on the works that he has completed and that he has done. When we stand before the throne, the Lord sees the work of Jesus Christ. And by faith, through grace, we are saved. It's not of works, but it is a gift of God. There's nothing we can do to get there. He's done it all. Exceeding joy, when he says that before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, means it's an immense, it's an extreme. It is a very great joy. The Lord has done this for us. 25 says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And as Rob has taught through Hebrews over the last couple months, two verses stand out to me when he talks about this. One's about the joys. Hebrews 1.9 says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And Hebrews 13.8 one I'm remembering forever is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his word is eternal. This is the fully canonized word of God. If anything, should, nothing should be edited, added, added, taken away from it. He is who he is. And 25, one more time, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's stand for a closing song. Father, thank you so much for your love, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord, in this warning. God, and thank you for the exhortation of lifting us up, Lord. And we just thank you for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.